Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, welcome to episode 76 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. We wanted to just get some messages across before we begin the show. First, we want to thank everyone who's left a review for the podcast on whichever podcast listening platform they use. We really appreciate it, and it makes us so happy to hear that you're enjoying us and that we're helping you get through this time, whatever it may be. If you haven't left a review, we would love for you to do so because it really helps us out. Or what you could do is spread the word about us to a friend. It's hard to get noticed in this sea of true crime podcasts. We love them all. There's just a lot of us out there. And it does make me feel a little bit better about my mental health that there's other people doing this. So that's good. (laughs) (laughs) So um, if you want extra episodes of True Crime Couple, you can head on over to our Patreon page where if you donate one or two dollars, you're going to get one bonus episode a month. And if you donate five dollars or up, we're going to send you a sticker and you get two bonus episodes a month. We're actually going to be um, releasing our first May episode for Patreon today, and it's on the case of Colleen Shan, the woman who was locked in a box for seven years. Brutal. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I did a lot of research on that one. That's actually a super long episode. So we're excited to release that to our Patreons. We're actually going to be thanking all of our new Patreons from April and the beginning half of this month at the end of this episode. So if that's you, stay tuned at the end for me to hopefully not butcher your name. I've Googled how to pronounce things, so I'm pretty prepared today. She really has. (laughs) <laughs> so if you want to contribute to our Patreon, you can join patreon.com slash true crime couple. Okay, I, I think we covered it all. We, I think we did. Let's yeah. get into it. Okay, so today we're going to talk about a devious family and its impact on the surrounding community. It is true that one family can negatively impact a block or even an entire town, wreaking havoc and leaving all of the citizens afraid. I mean, I think we can all reflect back and think of that one family, like the bad apples. Even if they were misunderstood, they um, put people on ease when they were... Does that make sense? They put people at ease, but it's unease. They put people at unease. <laughs> yes. No, I know what you mean. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, you definitely have one. I mean, I know... Both times I moved, both neighborhoods, it was the same thing. So Yeah, it's just a rough reputation that the family gets. And it happens. But what happens when the members of that family are just evil? And each one is just trying to outdo the other, terrorizing what would have been a seemingly perfect, quiet, suburban existence. What if the police can't catch them? And when they do, they're unfazed by any type of jail time. And the family alternates between home and jail their entire life. What if they get away with murder? What would you do? Would you move? Well, in this case, all of the above does happen. And for over 30 years, one family brings nothing but destruction to Emerson Heights, Indiana. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. 
So the story of the Reese family began in 1967 when Barbara Fordyce met Paul Reese. She definitely would have been categorized as a good girl, and that could be why she found Reese so attractive. After all, it's that age-old tale. A good girl falls in love with a bad boy. And by the time the couple marry, only one year later, Reese already had an extensive criminal record. He was involved in burglaries and thefts. Most of these criminal acts were committed to satiate an ever-growing drug habit. Despite her concerns about her new husband's drug habit, she does not ever intervene or discuss the criminal record or her husband's proclivity for drugs to anyone she knows. The couple moved into a house that Barbara inherited from her parents at 1428 North Bozart Ave in Emerson Heights, Indianapolis, Indiana. And this is on the east side of Indianapolis. So one of our OG listeners, the amazing Mike, he lives in Indianapolis. And we actually reached out to him to tell us kind of like what this neighborhood was like. So he did give us some insight onto the community and told us that it was a blue collar Irish section of the city in the 70s and the 80s. But of course, over time, it has become like so many sections of American cities run down. Abandoned buildings line the street like ghosts of their former glory. And it's sad to see, but the Reese family is going to live there in kind of like the heyday of the neighborhood when it's that Irish blue collar family, town kind of place, you know? That's some pretty good insight. It's good to get that, especially from our listeners. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That was great. Thanks, Mike. And they quickly fill the house with children, like a lot of children. The children they have in order are Paul Jr., of course, in 1970, then John, Brian, Jeremy, and Jenny. And they have these kids one after the other. So like each year a child is born. That's pretty uh, difficult. Yes. And then finally, six years later, so six years after Jenny's birth, they have another daughter and her name is Cynthia. So they have a lot of kids and then, uh, oh, well, that was a mistake, kid. <laughs> Which is totally yeah. okay, because that's me. So that's what are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, that's. I mean, it is pretty impressive, I guess, to have kids like that back to back to back. To I back. couldn't be imagine being pregnant for five years. Pretty much straight. Yeah. I mean, that's insane. That's, that's a lot. I feel so bad. <laughs> well, it does sound like an Irish Catholic family in the seventies, though. So right. Pretty typical. So as you could imagine, Paul Senior is not the best parent or role model for his children. He wasn't the guy that occasionally did drugs but then stopped when he had kids. He was the guy that drank and did more drugs because he had children. And now he had six of them within 10 years. So that's a lot. He also continued his criminal behavior to feed his drug habit. Now listen, I know that this money was obtained illegally, but this was the kind of guy he was. Instead of using the money to feed his family or buy clothes for his children... Which, and what I'm trying to say is that is still a bad thing. At least he's doing it for a good reason. He's not even doing that. So he's continuing his criminal behavior, but he's only using the money that he gets from the things that he steals to pay for his drug habit. Right. He works hard just really to feed a habit, not to provide for his kids. Right. For his addiction. So because Paul Sr. was always in and out of jail for his misdemeanor offenses, it was like Barbara was a single mother. At times, she would work three jobs to support the household. But in the late 1970s, it seemed like Barbara had caught a break. She received a high-paying job as a bank teller with benefits and the ability to move up in the company. She was proud of herself for the first time in a very long time. 
But this newfound independence did not last very long, as months into getting the job, Barbara was fired and arrested. She had stolen $1,200 from the bank and had been caught by a fellow employee. I mean, why? (laughs) Well, I think it might have been out of desperation. Like, here's a woman who, yes, she does now have a good paying job, but her family is really poor. And she has a lot of kids to support, but she's dealing with money all the time. So I could imagine that that temptation is there. I mean, for I think that's for anybody. They would have that sort of temptation, but I especially mean, if they really need it. True, but I just feel like I guess I guess everyone's different. I know that if I had a really good job, I would just want to do everything I could to keep it, can to keep it. You know, right? But you grew up differently. That's true, you're and right. you were in a different situation. You're right. So I think you know Barbara might have even seen criminality for a really long time. That criminal mindset might have you know brushed off on her a little bit. I was also thinking maybe it was also the pressure of being told to take it, too. Don't forget. I mean, you never know. Well, at this time, Paul Sr. is actually in jail, so he's not home. Okay. Well, maybe that's another reason, actually, too, though. Now she's really by herself. Right. I mean, I'm sure that he contributed something when he was around. I'm just saying. It's possible. Yeah. Maybe. We never know 100%. No, we don't. But let's just say, just, you know, just off topic here, a, a tiny bit of money. She's probably, now she doesn't have that, and maybe that was another reason for her uh, taking it. Or even just, you know, the support of having someone there, like, to make dinner for the kids and stuff. Right, right. That's crazy. So a reason why Barbara took the money was never truly given. But, I mean, obviously, we can deduce that it was either her being eventually influenced by her husband or just feeling the pressures of raising six kids on her own, like we said. But what we do know is that Barbara pled guilty to the offense. And because she had no priors and she was a single mother of six children, she was given only probation for the offense. And obviously she had to return the money. Although it may seem as if she got off easy, she didn't. She was fired from her high paying job and now she had a criminal record. So this meant it would be difficult for her to seek employment elsewhere. She was finally able to get a job as part of a maintenance staff for her local church. So there is one perk to this job though. Because she's an employee of the parish, her children would be able to attend the affiliated Catholic school for free. So this school, Little Flower Catholic School, was actually right across the street from their house. So that's really convenient. Barbara thought that this might actually help her children. Although Paul Sr. was not home, his presence was still felt in the house. She was able to keep her daughters in check, but it was a different story with her sons. They were the ones she had a problem with. Although they were only in their preteen years, in the late 1970s, they looked at Paul Sr. as a role model, the worst kind. He was a horrible example. He taught them how to fight and that it's best to be a bully at school versus being bullied themselves. He also taught them that they had the right to take things that weren't theirs. So even before they were in high school, the Reese boys all had records. They would break into homes on their street when they knew their neighbors weren't home, or they would just wander into open garages. Barbara felt she had lost complete control of the boys already. The town of Emerson Heights was completely controlled by the Wild Reese boys. There was nothing they could do. They couldn't complain to the parents because, well, when Paul Sr. was home and he wasn't in jail, he would tell the neighbors that he just told his boys to do that. And when the police were called, the boys were unfazed by the police or even entering into a juvenile detention center. They kind of saw it more as a badge of honor. Right, like they're doing so good, like they're pleasing their father, which is crazy to me. It is, it is. And could you imagine being an adult and being terrified of a group of children in your community? I mean, I I can't because, I mean, these kids are just running amok. I mean, I guess the neighbors just feel like there's nothing they can do, period. No. 
So although the boys were unfazed by this, Barbara wasn't. She decided that she was not going to sit passively anymore while her boys were being corrupted in front of her eyes by their father. So in 1979, after 11 years of marriage, Barbara told him that she wanted to separate. Of course, this led to a violent screaming match. But luckily, this fight ended without intervention from the police, and Paul Sr. agreed to move out. It was rare that a fight didn't end with intervention by the police, though. Paul Sr. wasted no time moving on. He met another woman and moved in with her almost immediately. Her name was Helen. Those who were close to him stated that the routine of living with Barbara and the presence of his children was really the only thing that had grounded Paul Sr., However, without them, he went into a downward spiral of drug use and violence. One night, after he had broken into a house and stolen a toolbox, Paul Sr. returned back to the house that he shared with his girlfriend. He had been using drugs all day. And at some point, Helen, who was 12 years older than him at 45 years old, had said something that threw him into a rage. Paul Sr. grabbed a claw hammer out of his new toolbox, and he began beating her with it. His attack lasted for minutes. At some point, he snapped out of his rage and saw what he had done, and in fear that she was dead, he called the police. He admitted that they had gotten into a fight. He said that he tried to kill her with a hammer. The ambulance arrived within minutes, and first responders found the woman clinging to life. Blood covered the floor, the walls, and the furniture. Paul Reese Sr. was gone by the time that they got there, and the woman died in the hospital. He had fled to Florida and went on a bender weekend. He returned in days to Indianapolis, where he was found by police in a hospital, where he was recovering from an overdose of antidepressants. He was identified as her attacker, and his fingerprints were found in her house. Paul Sr., although he admitted to the attack, claimed that he had a blackout. And in late December of 1979, are you ready for this? I'm ready. He received a six-year sentence for voluntary manslaughter. I mean, that's insane. Six years? Six years for killing somebody. I mean, that's wild because, I mean, you would think it would be more than that. A lot more. Well, what they said in the defense was he doesn't have any prior violent arrests. So he's not necessarily a violent offender, but he, because of his drug use and he had a mental breakdown and the two were fighting and this wasn't planned, this was an accident and he was the one who called police. That's yeah. why he got the six years. But can you can you imagine being a part of that woman's family and the guy who killed your your sister, your daughter, six years? Six years. And it's also, I know, and I know that they're saying an accident, but you have to think when you're a family, one of the family members of this person, she was beat to death pretty much with a hammer. So that's pretty violent. Yeah, no, I couldn't imagine anyone I love passing away that way. I mean, that's not how you want to think of someone's last moments of their life. So I feel really bad for that family. Yeah, me too. And it's during this time that Barbara discovered that no matter how hard she tried to discipline the boys, they always resorted to the criminal behavior that they learned from their father. She also discovered that she missed her husband. And the two began communicating again while she was while he was in prison. So they get back together. Could you imagine you divorce your husband because he's a drug addict and he's influencing your your four boys to become criminals. So you finally get the courage to leave him and then he kills his new girlfriend and then you're like, I want him back. It's a pretty odd choice. <laughs> I think that it, well, let's just say it's odd before and after the killing pretty much of 
his new girlfriend. Yeah. You shouldn't do it. You shouldn't have done it before that. And now you should definitely not do it after he killed somebody. It's a, there's no point in this timeline that it's right for her to take him this back. This is not a healthy relationship. Ever. <laughs> but I, I can understand that in this situation, you know, Barbara in a way is a victim herself because she's definitely involved in a unhealthy and what we can describe as an abusive relationship. And it seems that she is dependent on Paul Sr., even though he doesn't provide anything for her. Right. I mean, you also have to remember they've been together for a long time. Yes. And that's pretty much all she knows. And it doesn't seem like she ever tried to get go out with anybody else or experience what it would be like. Yeah, this so that's was all, yeah. her guy. Right. Yeah. And the psychologists do say that when you enter into a relationship at a young age and you stay with that person, that sometimes you become emotionally arrested at that age. So, you know, is Barbara always going to have the mindset and the thought process of a 17-year-old? Yeah. You know, when she, while she's with Paul Sr. And I think that's kind of really what happened here. Well... Are you ready for some more bad news? <laughs> Bring it on. It's all I give you. Paul Reese Sr. was released from prison early because of good behavior. It's always good behavior. Good be- He beat a woman with a hammer. That is bad behavior. He needs to serve those six years for the yeah. bad behavior. No matter how good he acts, he still needs to th- have consequences for murdering someone. Okay. I know I say this all the time. Whatever somebody gets charged with, whatever, however you think about uh, the whole jail system and everything, that's up to you but doesn't don't they realize that of course they're gonna be good they're gonna be good they're gonna have good behavior yes they they're gonna do to the right go thing home. you're literally locked in a box pretty much for 24 hours yeah. oh, 23 hours of your day they're gonna be good because they want to get out <laughs> but also people in the prison system need people to behave well to make things a lot easier so there needs to be some reward i suppose for behaving well or else the jail system would be chaos especially with the overcrowding we have in the united states i was gonna say that's probably another thing is the fact that they'll release but but i get good behavior on like a drug offense but like on murder with a hammer and then you ran away to florida and had a a a bender like that is a little different than like having weed on you I, that's yeah i don't know throw it out there i just never understood the whole good behavior thing i mean they all know it's coming it's not like it's like a, yeah. oh wow he turned his life around while being in a, in a jail cell like no he's being good to get out <laughs> i will say god forbid if i ever go to prison which i never will because it's i would die in an in- instant like the second my foot went inside I yeah. would hope there's some good behavior for me. <laughs> I'm like, I'll be so good. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, I would never leave. I would stay stinky. I would never leave my jail cell. You would know they make you shower. I, you know, I don't care. <laughs> well, we don't have to worry because we don't do anything I, wrong. I would never leave. First of all, I would do nothing to get in there. No, no, you wouldn't. We are the most paranoid people ever. I return my cart to the cart returner thing in the grocery store because I'm so nervous. You do. And I always make sure <laughs> I have a quarter on me to put it in the thing to take the cart out. You know, they have the little quarter. Yeah, thing. I don't think everyone has that, though. But our grocery store here, in order to keep the carts like nice and neat, they're like there's a system where you have to put a quarter in it to release it. And then you, when you return it, you get your quarter back. Yes. Even though there was one time where I was, was kind of having a bad day and I, I felt like I didn't want to give him my quarter. And I, I tried to pull the quarter out 
once I raged. It was so. You know what? I was like John stop. over over something that meant nothing. You're like I, why do I have the quarter every time? Why? Yeah, I was like, why do I want this quarterback so badly? And then even after the fact, I just didn't understand why. I but did you it. get it back at the end anyway. I know. I don't. I have no idea. Bad day, I guess. It was a rough day. It was. It a was. rough time at Shoprite. Okay, so Paul Reese Sr. gets out early. And by early, I mean he only served two months shy of three years. So that's a little under half of his sentence, which was already short to begin with. So when Paul Sr. came home on October 15th, 1982, he moved back in with Barbara and the children on North Bozar Ave. While Paul Sr. was away, Barbara had lost her job on the custodial staff for the church. So she asked him to contribute to the bills. However, he does not do so. He's too busy hanging out with the boys who are now all three years older. And he felt that it was his job to be their caretaker. I say that in inverted commas. Barbara had to resort to getting the only job she could, delivering newspapers. It's really sad to see the um, the downward spiral of her job career. And it's so unfortunate that she even had to do all those things yeah. when her husband did nothing but like it sucks you you had a great job at the bank then you had a decent job you know at the school and now you're delivering newspapers it's just such a decline yeah for no reason and you know to think of her potential in 1967 because for really her entire life from what her family said was she was this good girl who got good grades and she could have been destined for some pretty amazing things but she just hooked up with the wrong guy right so as the years went on Paul Sr. felt it appropriate to introduce his boys to every aspect of his life. So at the tender ages of 14, 13, 12, and 11, they began doing drugs with their father. He's going to teach them how to roll blunts, mix drinks, and chug beers. He began praising them for the amount they could smoke, drink, and steal. This is basically the way things continue for years. The boys going further and further down the wrong path led by their father, and the household being supported by robberies and a paper route. At this point, the oldest boy, Paul Jr., is 16, and he has a girlfriend that um, stays with him in the basement almost full-time. So this brings us to March 16th, 1986. The Stewart family that lived one block away from the Reese family on Drexel Ave, um, they have a bit of an interesting living arrangement. Both the stewards, Ted and Sandy, actually worked full-time in Dayton, Ohio. They worked there during the week, and they came home to be with their 13-year-old daughter, Dawn, on the weekend. So while they were in Daytona, Dawn would live with her Aunt Ramona, who lived on the same block as her. So that's really convenient, and it's good that she's still being, like, basically raised by a family member. Yeah, of course. So on that Sunday, Ted and Sandy had pressing business in in Dayton. I keep wanting to say Daytona. You, you did say Daytona before. Did I? You did, did I? Yeah. Oh, fudge. <laughs> Sorry. You can't edit that one out. No. <laughs> okay. So just to be clear, Dayton, Ohio, they are not traveling to Florida. <laughs> so they had pressing business in Dayton and they would be leaving a little bit earlier than usual around 9 a.m. Dawn waved goodbye to her parents as they left. She was going to go to her aunt shortly afterward, but it was early. So she had some time, you know, left to kind of like walk around and do 13-year-old girl things. So she figured she would stop over at the Reese's house before going to her aunt's. Now, Dawn was friends with the eldest Reese daughter, um, Jenny, and they were like behind-the-street neighbors. Uh, okay, behind-the-street neighbors, yes. So their backyards kind of met. That's how Drexel Ave and North Bozart was. Okay. So they 
played a lot because, I mean, you got to think the kids are all like the Reese kids are all around the same age. So you're going to have a lot of similar friends. So Dawn was friends with the youngest brother, Brian, and with Jenny. So she's going to go to the Reese household. And another reason why she would want to go to their house was because she actually helped Barbara out with her paper route. And recently, Dawn wanted to start her own paper route. So Barbara had kind of told her, you know, if you want, come over one weekend and I'll talk to you and kind of like explain to you um, how you go about getting your own paper route. So Dawn figured this is a perfect time, right? Right. So Dawn knocked on the door of the Reese household at about 9.30 a.m. All members of the family, but Barbara and the four youngest children were still sleeping. In addition to the Reese family, Paul Jr.'s girlfriend Pamela was present, as was his friend Tim. Dawn told them that she was there to see Barbara, and they told her that she was sleeping, but she could wait around for a little bit if she wanted to. And she said she would. So Dawn knew the family had a pool table in the basement. So she asked Paul Sr., who was holding a pool cue, if he wanted to play. He told her that he would play with her later. Then she asked Paul Jr.'s girlfriend, Pamela, if she wanted to play. But the 17-year-old told her that she could not because her, Paul Jr., and Tim were going to a flea market in a few minutes. And they were going to the flea market to um, sell stolen goods that they had. It's a nice, you know, quality Sunday activity. Quality bonding. Yes. So the three left the house, leaving basically Paul Sr. and Dawn completely alone together. Um, But they did forget something, so they had to come back between 10.30 and 11 a.m. Dawn had been there when they arrived, and she had a pool cue in her hands. The three left again at about noon to go back out to the flea market. Sometime between noon and 2 p.m., he can't be sure, a friend of the boys, 16-year-old Doyle Stinson, knocked on the door. He reported that Dawn opened the door and that someone, who must have been standing behind the door, slammed it shut. Like, Dawn went to go say hello and someone slammed the door in his face, basically. And um, he didn't knock again and he left the property. I mean, I think people probably realize that, like, if the Reese's kind of don't want you there, you don't, you shouldn't be there. At 4.30, Pamela returned home. She said that she walked in and it looked as if Paul Sr. had just taken a shower. Dawn was no longer at the house. And she was about to walk down into the basement where she shared a room with her boyfriend, Paul Jr. And his father, Paul Sr., told her that she wasn't allowed to go in the basement. Now, Pamela admitted that she was a little scared of Paul Sr., so she listened to him and she didn't go in the basement. She just waited for her boyfriend to come home. In the meantime, Dawn's aunt Ramona was beginning to worry about her. She was supposed to be at her house in the morning after her parents left. But now it's the afternoon and she thought, okay, maybe Dawn just like just kind of got caught up playing with friends. So she waited. But at 3 p.m., she got really worried. That is when she called Dawn's parents in Dayton. She told them every parent's worst nightmare. I think she's missing. Ted and Sandy Stewart turned around as fast as they could and drove back to Indianapolis. Good thing it's only Dayton and not Daytona. Yeah, it would yeah, be a, a large distance to yeah, cover. Be, be a long. longer distance. Yes. So when he returned, the first place that Ted Stewart went was to the Reese house to check if his daughter was there. Barbara was the one who answered the door for him. He asked if Dawn was there. She told him that she had not been over the house at all that day. Well, Ted Stewart knew that this was not true. 
because when Dawn's aunt was worried, she had phoned other people in town to ask if they had seen Dawn, and three people said that they saw Dawn walk into the Reese's house. So now Barbara's straight out lying to Ted Stewart. But is this because she was not there? Well, this will answer your question. Okay. From behind Barbara, six-year-old Cindy began to protest. Yes, Mom, she was. So Cindy is saying she was here and without hesitation, Barbara turned around and slapped the girl across the face. Um, I mean, that's kind of odd, especially since you have the father asking right there. Yes. So Ted Stewart is like, okay, this is all bullshit. So he runs into the house, like father award of the year, and he begins screaming his daughter's name. Like, where are you? Come out. Um, I know she's here. And... He goes upstairs and then he finally goes down into the basement. And he did say that he had a weird feeling when he got down to the basement, like something was wrong. But the house was hard to see through because now this wasn't a thing yet. But like the Reese family, they were hoarders. Their house was filthy. It was disgusting. And they had so much junk and garbage literally stacked from floor to ceiling that it was difficult for Ted Stewart to kind of even navigate through the house, let alone find his daughter. Yeah, it's probably all the garbage and all the items that they stole. Yeah, that they can't sell. <laughs> yeah. So after not being able to find his daughter in the Reese home, Ted Stewart picked up his wife and they went directly to the police station to file a missing persons report for his daughter. He told police everything that the neighbors told him, as well as the fact that he stormed into the house but couldn't find Dawn. The police search for Dawn began. Later that day, Paul Jr. is going to ask a friend if he could borrow his car while he was at his friend's house. So his friend agreed. And hours later, when Paul Jr. returned with it, he noticed that the car was a mess. Now, this was the same friend that um, he went to the flea market with. So the car had mud all over it and the back seat had been let down. It seemed like Paul Jr. had moved something large because the speakers had also been removed. He had left some things in the car that his friend knew were not his. These items, according to court documents, were one half of a pool cue, some wadded up tape, newspaper, and some black spray paint. Paul Jr. then asked his friend for a ride to go look at some tires that he'd seen. His friend sensed that there was something weird going on, as Paul Jr.'s face looked really flushed and he seemed nervous. But he still agreed to take him to look at these tires. Um, He insisted that they drive past a ravine on 22nd Street and Drexel, kind of by like... um a play area for for kids, and also that they drive past a baseball park, which was on 19th Street and Forest Manor Ave. So the tires were actually at the location on Forest Manor Ave. And after they looked at these like kind of used tires that were discarded, um, he drops Paul Jr. back off at his house. Hmm. So it was kind of like a scavenger hunt. Yeah. That night, while Paul Jr. and his girlfriend Pamela were sleeping in the basement of the Reese house, Pamela was awakened by a lot of noise and banging. When she awoke and looked out to figure out what the source of the noise was, Barbara Reese told her not to worry about it, that she was just doing laundry and to go back to bed. Well, Pamela definitely didn't hear the washer or the dryer, but she didn't want to start any problems, so she just kind of like went back to bed. Even later on in the night, one of the Reese neighbors, Carol Lucan, heard loud noises coming from outside. She couldn't be exactly sure what time it was, but she knew it was between 1 and 1.30 a.m. She had been up late caring for newborn puppies that she had just got. That's adorable. 
So she heard some loud talking and the sound of banging doors. So she, of course, like any good neighbor, looks out her window. And she saw Paul Reese Sr. and Jr. carrying a rolled up piece of carpet. But there was something in the carpet. It was misshapen and the carpet was actually sagging heavily in the middle where the men weren't holding it. So like the most obvious carrying out of a body that you could ever do. So she watched them load the carpet and its mysterious cargo into the family station wagon. Then Paul Jr. went back inside the house and Barbara and Paul Sr. got into the two front seats of the car and they began driving off with no headlights on. I mean, that's so sketchy. I mean, you have to know someone's going to see you. Yeah. You live in a neighborhood with that's lots like, of people. That's um, like the movie, like The Burbs with Tom Hanks, when he sees all that stuff like going on. It's oh, like right. the yeah. most obvious like concealing of a body of all time. <laughs> and you're just like, okay, what am I going to do with this information? <laughs> so the next morning on St. Patrick's Day, the body of Dawn Stewart was found. A mother who was walking her daughter to school noticed the body of a young girl in a ravine around 22nd Street and Drexel Avenue, the same place Paul Jr. made his friend drive by. The police quickly arrived at the scene and they began investigating. This was actually a curious place to drop a body because the public does have so much access to it and because it is around a place where, where a lot of kids play. So it wasn't like this body was trying to be concealed, which was interesting. The girl's parents were contacted right away and told that their daughter was possibly found. Investigators interviewed those who lived in the area of the ravine, and many people reported that they heard dogs barking around 1.30 in the morning. Now, this is consistent with um, Carol Lucan's story, who said that that's around the time she saw the Reese's leave their house. That's interesting. So there's multiple accounts of them leaving at that time. Oh, yeah. Lots (laughs) of circumstantial evidence. So this, they assumed, was when the body had been dropped. It is also determined by them that the little girl was murdered somewhere else and then brought to this second site. They came to this conclusion because of a large amount of yellow and green carpet fibers found on the young girl and in her mouth. There was also a lack of blood at the scene. According to the police reports, the young girl had a bruise on the bridge of her nose, multiple small abrasions on her forehead and cheek. There was residue from adhesive tape on her mouth and wrists. She had blunt force trauma to the back of her head. The wound, they determined, came from a thin, hard object. There was also signs of strangulation, but it was a curious strangulation as... It didn't seem like it was fingers or hands that caused the strangulation. There was also vaginal and anal forced sexual injuries present. Police were rattled by the crime because this poor girl, this 13-year-old girl, suffered greatly before her death. Once the Stewarts heard about the body of a young girl being found, they ran to the scene. And that's because it was right around the block from their house. They live on Drexel Avenue. Police stop them at the tape, but they demand to know if it's their daughter. A detective brought them down to her, and they pulled back the white sheet that they had used to cover the young girl's body. Upon seeing her, the couple crumbled and confirmed that it was Dawn. Once composed, Ted Stewart told the detective that he knew that the Reese family was responsible for this. So I have to think that that interaction between detective and and parents and having to show them hey you know is this 
your daughter. Yeah. That probably has to be the hardest thing for not only the, well, mo- of course, the parents. I mean, that's the most obvious, but that must feel so bad as like a, like a first responder, as like a, as a, someone that's supposed to, you know, be there to help your community and help out the people. That must be really hard as well on your mind. Because you you know oh, you see yeah. things like that all the time. I mean, like even like we just we read things and we're a little taken back by what we read. Oh yeah, it's hard not to cry reading that. You know what I'm saying? So like to just to think of just the parents being in that situation, and the worst part is to know or to have an idea that that family was involved is just I it's unthinkable. Like I I can't even wrap my mind around it or even try to imagine what that would do to me. Right, law enforcement. They do say that that is probably the hardest part of their job is notification of death or accompanying a loved one to identify a body. Like, I can only imagine what that does. Um, I do think that it probably would, like, bring up the resolve of an officer or um, a detective to really want to find the person who's responsible for that. But in this case, it's extremely frustrating because not only do the stewards know the Reese family did this, but so do the detectives. Right. They're just looking to make make sure they could build their case against them. Right. And that's what's so hard. Like, I can only imagine how frustrating it may be to not be able to find somebody. But then could you imagine knowing it's somebody and not being able to prove it? And then also to find out all the extra things that happened to her. Yeah. On top of her death. Brutal. That would that would be even worse to know that it wasn't something quick or just whatever. It was torturous. That's the worst part. Yeah. It's terrifying. So about five hours after the discovery of Dawn Stewart's body, the Reese family, along with Paul Jr.'s friend and girlfriend, are brought in for questioning. The police separated them all in hopes that they could get one of them to crack. Paul Jr.'s girlfriend and friend quickly give up the information that we talked about before, as they didn't have the same criminal mindset as the Reese family. The two broke ties with the family after the questioning as well. Great job, Pamela. Good job breaking up with Paul Jr. Because you were going to become Barbara. Yeah, you probably would have been next. You know, it's... No, no, like the wife. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I mean, that's also terrible. I mean, you don't want that yeah, life either. No. Nobody wants that. So the Reese family, they're a totally different story altogether. Paul Sr. knew how to stand up to police questioning, obviously. He's done it several times. And he also taught his family how to do so as well. Investigators reflected that Paul Sr. was very confident under questioning. He treated the detectives like they weren't worth his time. He answered them as curtly as possible, never giving away more than they asked of him, and barely when it came to it. Regarding the previous morning, he said that Dawn must have shown up around 11 a.m. to talk to his wife about the paper route, but she was asleep. He said he played pool with her for about an hour and then that the girl had left her house around noon to see another friend. He said that most of the kids were sleeping during this time, but the only ones up were Paul Jr. and his girlfriend Pamela. However, the two left with a friend to attend a flea market. That was it. That was the only information that he gave. All other family members of the Reese family had the same exact story to tell. Detectives knew that they weren't going to break the family, so they wasted no more time in doing so. They knew that they would get more information from serving a warrant. So they got a warrant as fast as they could. And while the Reese family was just returning to their house from being questioned, they served the warrant. Like they wanted to get the warrant while they were being held for questioning. So the Reese family didn't have time to go back to the house and and touch anything. Which is smart. Very smart. So the problem was (laughs) that when they entered the house, they were shocked 
at its contents and not just the evidence, but like the look of the place. The Reese's were like I said before, they were hoarders. There was junk and garbage piled to the ceiling and it was disgusting and really hard to get through. But even though that was the case, they found carpet pieces in the basement that were the same color as the fibers found on the body of Dawn and in her mouth. On the brick below a furnace, investigators found blood and it was collected. But of course, in 1986, the only thing that they could determine was blood type. And the blood that was found on the brick was type O. Now, this is the same blood type as Dawn Stewart but it's also the same blood type as two other members of the Reese family. Yes, that's completely possible. I Googled it. They're like only two members could have type O. So now here's your issue. They can't determine if it's Dawn's or not, which is so frustrating. I, yeah, but what about the um, the fibers of the carpet? I mean, that would be, that's a very, um, you know, I mean, come right, on. Right, but then they the would odds? have to prove manufacturing of the carpet could this carpet be in other houses like it's circumstantial right that's an easy one to get around so unfortunately this isn't enough evidence for an arrest in 1986 if this was 2020 i mean they would all be arrested so police continue to investigate in hopes of finding new clues however nothing is found And in hopes of scaring them, they arrest both Paul Jr. and Paul Sr. for the murder of Dawn Stewart, as they don't know which one of them committed the murders. That's still not clear. So sometimes this is a tactic that investigators use in a circumstantial case in order to build more evidence against a suspect. However, this tactic doesn't work. Paul Jr. refuses to speak, and his father immediately requests a lawyer. Police were forced to release the two men. And because there's no such thing as DNA evidence, the case against the Reese family fell apart. And unfortunately, in January of 1987, all charges against them had been dropped. Dawn's parents were devastated. It's it's really insane. But it kind of goes back to um, something that we talked about privately when we were on the couch watching a show. We were just saying yeah. how like it would be impossible. It is almost impossible for someone to get away with murder in 2020 it's like it's like it's slim to none Mm -hmm. it would it would require the people investigating to make massive amounts of mistakes for it to actually for it to for people to get away with something right and the person to either be the smartest person on the planet or just have dumb luck and also to keep a straight face and not fold under pressure and questioning it takes actually so much for that to even happen so it's so sad that these all these crimes before technology really improved to catch people. Yeah. Because look how many cases like couldn't be solved. Yes, and that's something we're going to get to later about like retesting too and how much time it takes and how many cases are just waiting to be solved. Yeah, it's pretty incredible actually. Okay, guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Best Fiends. We want to tell you that now not only are we hooked on Best Fiends, but we've gotten our families involved as well. Once you start playing this unique puzzle game, it is so fun to advance through the levels. As time goes on and you power up your adorable bug characters to defeat the slugs, you feel invested in their growth. It is so much fun to see how they change and how they power up over time. As the levels advance and the designs and gameplay become more complicated, And the more characters you have, the game becomes one of pure strategy. Which bug can you use to beat one particular level? And when you find the right one, it's so rewarding. This puzzle game is an experience unlike any other out there. It is consistently updated and changed, so it's always new and refreshing for its players. 
Each month, there is a theme and a challenge, which I love to see. I find myself now playing it when I want to relax on the couch and get lost in something fun for a while. It's an escape. Best Fiends does not require the internet to play, so you don't need to worry about Wi-Fi access or using cell data. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. With over 1 million downloads and tons of 5-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Okay, guys, let's get back to the show. But just because the Reese family was never tried and convicted in court of law didn't mean that the court of public opinion swayed in their favor. The community believed that the Reese family was responsible for the death of poor Dawn Stewart. Everyone had been unnerved by the thieving family before, feeling unsafe with criminals so close. But now they knew they were murderers. Imagine that. Yeah, it's one thing if like, oh, I, you know, I caught one of them stealing my, you know, something on my porch or whatever, you know, or break, even breaking into your house. I mean, that's pretty crazy as well. Yeah. But to know that there are people in the neighborhood that, that raped and murdered mm, a girl. Yes. And also that witnessed something happening at night. You know, you know, the whole rug thing. Yeah. I mean, I would not feel safe there. Oh, no, I'd be scared. Like, oh, my God, I said something. Right. And not, not only that, but just the fact that they're there, period. Right. And the fact that they got away with it. The message to the community was that the Reese family was getting worse and worse and they were basically untouchable. I mean, think about it. Paul Senior really did already kill someone before and he only went to jail for almost three years. Right. And he's also coaching his kids this whole entire time. To do the same. To do very similar things, or if not the same. So I would not feel comfortable there. I'd probably be like, you know what? Okay, let's let let's go. Let's, let's Time leave. to move. Time to move. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, after escaping murder charges, the family went back to their petty crimes of breaking and entering to pay for theirs and their father's building drug habits. The Reese boys get in trouble with the law in 1989 when they're caught in the act during a robbery. They had felt like they had hit every house that they could in a pretty large radius from their own home, so they chose to break into a house in Johnson County. It was a rather large house. However, neighbors had seen the boys breaking in and they called police. The police walked in to the unlocked house and caught the boys going through the family's valuables. Like, you're literally caught in the act. So they all got arrested and sent to jail. However, this didn't faze them. In the Reese family, a stint in jail or prison, just like it was with Juvenile Detention Center, it's a badge of honor for them. Over the next 20 years, the Reese's only got worse. Their never-ending cycle of drugs and jail time plagued each brother. As time went on, their drug use got even worse. As most addicts do, they craved a better and better high. This led the family to use crack. In 2008, the only two male members of the Reese family that were out of prison were Paul Sr., who was 56, and Brian, who was now 38, Remember, Brian is the youngest of the boys and the one that was friends with Dawn Stewart. Brian was, at the moment, Paul Sr.'s favorite son because he was the one supplying him with crack. Brian lived in the home of his girlfriend, 24-year-old Lana Bishop. The two were both addicted to crack and often paid for their fixes using the money that Brian got from robberies. Now, prior to this, Lana Bishop had no prior records and was not an addict. She only became so after she met her new boyfriend 
By the summer of 2008, the trio of Paul Sr., Brian, and Lana spent their days and nights scheming to get money to get high. I mean, that's it. That Their day was consumed by finding a way to get money, getting high, and then needing more money to get high again. Right. It became their life. On July 8th, 2008, the group was out of drugs again. They were all out of money. Brian had an idea that they should rob a nearby house. He commented that it looked really nice outside, so there must be nice things inside, right? The trio planned that night that they would break into the house. After 10 p.m., the three went to the house. Brian first knocked on the door to see if anyone was home, but no lights came on, so he kicked in the door. This action awoke the homeowner, 68-year-old Clifford Haddix. Brian went inside and his two accomplices stayed outside. He went upstairs and was confronted by Clifford. Brian shot the man in the chest and grabbed all the valuables he could. He ran out of the house and his father and girlfriend followed. So now he left a 68-year-old man dead, a grandfather. Yeah, that's pretty sad. It took two days for them to, to basically smoke through the money that they got from the murder and the robbery of Clifford Haddix. Two days. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That's what the le- his life came down to. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure, I mean, I don't know, but I'm sure crack isn't cheap. But if even No, if, crack is cheap. That's the whole point. Of, like, of crack, people, yeah, you know what you're right, actually. Come on, John. You don't know what you're right. You know, you need but, to know well, these things. Okay, well, then you know what, then? At that point, right, it would be more of the fact that they probably just bought so much. Well, that's the thing. Like, it is, I guess you could say cheap, but then you need so much of it that it becomes right. no longer cheap. So... And don't forget, there's three of them. That's true, too. So so they need more money again. And this time, it was Paul Sr. who had the idea. Let's just rob your drug dealer, he said. They agreed that this was the best thing to do because now they wouldn't have the problem of running out of the money because they were directly stealing the drugs. So with one murder under his belt, it was easy for Brian to commit another because... I mean, to them, they felt as if they had gotten away with the Haddock's murder or that it was just a fog because now they're like just on a bender here. They figured that the police wouldn't really look into the murder of a drug dealer so they would be safe. Like there's a lot of suspects of the murder of a drug dealer. Right. (laughs) His name was Demetrius Allen. He lived a few houses away from Lana Bishop. Brian and Lana actually knew him very well. When they knocked on his door on July 9th, he greeted them fondly. He was met with a shot to the chest, and he fell instantly to the ground. Lana and Paul Sr. worked to pick up as much drugs as they could find in the house, while Brian noticed that they had company. Demetrius's girlfriend, Crystal Jenkins, was cowering in the corner, crying. She was begging for her life. Brian showed her no mercy and shot her several times. However, the drug-induced logic did not fool the police of Indianapolis. They put it together pretty quickly that all of these murders were connected. Both were attacks, basically breaking and entering, and valuables or drugs were stolen. I mean, it's also the fact that these murders occurred within blocks of each other, and multiple murders don't often happen in this area. So police were pretty convinced that they were connected. Not to mention within, what, three days? Uh, what Two days. Two days. So what police do is they work their informants because they believe, okay, this has to be drug-related, so let's see what our informants can kind of gather up from this. Because this is going to be big news. This was the area's drug dealer, so his murder would be pretty big. Right. So their informants come back with information right away. Lana Bishop was telling people on the streets 
that she had committed some burglaries and that they had turned violent. So this was interesting. So the police chose to go to the bishop house and find out what Lana was talking to people about. When police arrived at Lana Bishop's house, both Brian and Paul Sr. were there as well. Brian went to answer the door and saw the plainclothed police officers. The men asked if they could come in and talk to Lana. Brian asked them to hold on while he put their dog away in a bedroom. But Brian was paranoid and he thought that they were there to arrest him. So he made a run for it. After waiting a while, the police officers call for backup and enter the house forcibly. They arrest Paul Reese Sr. and Lana Bishop. They have already lost Brian, but they are sure they know where he is headed, his real address. He still lived with his mother, technically, on North Bozart Street. So they knew that the family would stick together, as they always had, and that he would be asking Barbara for help because she was the only other member of the Reese family that was out of prison at the time. And his sisters had moved away since. Smart move. So the police start watching Barbara. Eventually, they see her leave her home and they follow her. On a random street, she stops driving and Brian hops in the passenger side. They begin tailing her SUV. However, Brian picked up on the tail and he told his mother to stop. She pulled over and he ran out. Officer Jason Fishburne chased Brian Reese on foot after this. They ran through residential streets and through back and front yards. Brian was armed. He hid behind the back end of a house and waited for Officer Fishburne to chase him towards the backyard of the property. The officer approached. Brian Reese stepped out from behind the house and fired at the officer's chest. He fell to the ground, but luckily he was wearing a bulletproof vest. Reese then shot Officer Fishburne in the head. He ran to the front of the house where police cars and officers were waiting for him. He again tried to run, but an officer shot him twice in the shoulder. He was finally taken down. He was brought to a hospital where he was placed under arrest, and after he was treated, he went directly to jail. Miraculously, Officer Fishburne survived. He survived? He survives. Oh my god, that's insane. He was very badly wounded and will suffer from his injuries for the rest of his life, but he lived. Wow. Brian Reese was charged with three counts of murder and attempted murder. It seemed the loyalty of the Reese family had finally faltered because his father tried to save himself by admitting to the police everything that his youngest son had done. He even testified against Brian in open court. He sealed his son's fate. The same son that had, like his brothers, lied for his father so many times throughout their lives, right? I mean, his his friend died. Yeah. And who stuck to the story? Brian. Yep. It, it doesn't matter. I mean, when at the end of the day, when you're... When you are facing any sort of time or facing anything at all, you'll automatically just turn on anyone. And especially... Paul Sr. Especially Paul Sr. Because it was all always just about him. Right. Never his sons. Brian Reese received 189 years in prison for what he did. The families of his victims felt like they had justice, and they said so in local newspapers. For his testimony, Paul Sr. received a reduced sentence of 20 years. So he did still get sentenced to 20 years in prison. Because of Lana Bishop's testimony and the fact that she had no prior records, the woman only received probation. As the evilness of the Reese family played out on television in 2011 during this trial, Ted Stewart watched on in fury at the man he believed got away with murdering his beautiful little girl. He chose to make a plea via the media while they were still talking about Paul Sr., to reopen Dawn's case, 
This drew attention from lawmakers, and the DNA and carpet fibers in Dawn's case were retested. Now, I just want to take a second here to just say that this murder took place in 1986. You have these clear-cut suspects, and it's 2011, and all it would take to solve that cold case would be the testing of evidence. The backlog is so crazy in this country of, of DNA testing, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. But think about how many murders are probably just waiting to be solved. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The carpet fibers found in Dawn's mouth match the fibers in the Reese family home. It was their carpet. The DNA provided by Dawn's family was a match for the blood found on the brick in the basement of the house. That was Dawn's blood. In addition to the physical evidence, the police received a letter from an inmate that was Paul Sr.'s bunkmate. The inmate, who got nothing for saying this, stated that Paul Sr. told him that about 25 years before, he had murdered a young girl because she stayed too late. Those are his words. Because she stayed too late. But he told the inmate that he couldn't be convicted because of the statute of limitations that they had run out. Um, you're dumb because there's no statute of limitations on murder and you could still be tried for Don Stewart's murder. <laughs> I mean, there are some special circumstances. Um, if it violates the defendant's um, like right to a speedy trial, then that's the only time the statute of limitations is up. But right. that doesn't apply here, obviously. So on February 7th, 2011, Paul Sr. is charged while in prison with the murder of Dawn Stewart. During the trial of the 69-year-old man, a doctor testified that it is most likely a pool cue that was used to hit the girl on the head, cause the damage to the bridge of her nose, and it was also mo- most likely that, that she was strangled with the pool cue as well, and that the sexual assault took place before before her death. Wow. After this, he had hid her body in the basement, making one of the most heartbreaking details of this entire case the fact that when Ted Stewart ran into the basement looking for her daughter, she was only feet away from him. That's, that's, I can't even believe it. I don't think we've ever had something like that where she was right there. She was right there within reach, kind of. Yeah. I mean, that's so sad. That is so sad. And to know for years that he was the one that did this. Yep is I think the most heart-wrenching thing because it's I know like of course it's it's a hard to when you a family doesn't know what happened yeah. to their family member but, but imagine it's, knowing imagine what happened. knowing and who it is and where it is and everything and no justice at all because yeah. it just didn't work out that way for them. Well Paul senior was convicted of the murder of 13-year-old Dawn Stewart, a murder that took place in March of 1986 and he received 60 years in prison, meaning that that sentence on top of his 20-year sentence from the other incident that took place with his son, Brian, meant he would have to spend 80 years in prison, thus giving him a life sentence at 69 years old. All right. Well, justice is served. Unfortunately, the statute of limitations did run out for Paul Jr. and his mother, Barbara, to try them for accessory to murder after the fact. When asked about the verdict, Ted Stewart was happy with the results. He said that there was a very special place in hell for Paul Reese Sr. I think we can all agree. I agree. To that one. Yeah. So as of 2012, the Stewarts found peace, and so did the town of Emerson Heights. Since 1979, the members of the Reese family combined have been arrested over 50 times. 
That is wild. And they've finally been brought down. Good. <laughs> Jesus. Good. I mean, it took a lot. That it, is it such a, a sad story. So yeah. many people had to, if you think about it, those crimes. Now, I don't, do I know necessarily if those second group of crimes that happened with Brian would have taken place if Paul Sr. was arrested? I don't know, but I think it, Paul Sr. getting away with the murder of Dawn Stewart in 1986, I think set forth a chain of events that continued the decline of the Reese family. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I think that the turning point, well, the downturn for the entire family was the moment that they decided to get back together. Yeah. Because I think that no matter what, though, those kids would have gone down that road anyway. Yes, they, they still would. They were already wouldn't. groomed to that sort of lifestyle. So it wouldn't have mattered. I think I think the worst part about this whole thing is all the kids that were involved and how it affected them. Like, right. in that family alone, those kids were, vi- like, not victims, but they, they were definitely, like... Well, what chance did they have? They had zero chance yeah. for any sort well, of normalcy. Well, you do have to say, okay, listen, it was a choice because the daughters did not go down that path. Right. But I'm saying, like, they had zero chance of normalcy. Right. One of the sons, it would have been... They would have been ostracized in the family if they didn't go along with what was happening. And I think that he really paid more attention to his sons than he did his daughters. Yeah, that is true. And you can make the argument that maybe all of these things took place with Brian because as the youngest, he was trying to prove himself the most. That's also true. It said that the kids never had a chance and also that and Dawn just never had a chance to just grow up and have a life and that... All these people were affected by this one family. So it's really sad. But it is good that her family did get answers and justice when it came to the DNA testing. So that is a positive. Oh, that's a that's a hard one. Heavy that's a one. rough one. Heavy one. Okay, what I want to do now is take the time to thank our Patreons for all of their amazing donations. Again, guys, we appreciate you donating money so much. It really, really helps us out. So here are the Patreons for the month of May. Mike Salas, he is the one who helped us with this case and this information about the town. So we really appreciate that. He upped his pledge. Thank you very much. We, we, we appreciate that. And then there's Brittany L., Shanoa Leefelt, Al Ridley, Meredith Cobb upped her pledge, Sarah Hatfield, Jenny Martin, Amanda Walsh, Shania Duquette, Ginger Cornejo, Rebecca Hensley, and from the month of April, there's Jessica Marino, Sophie Howarth, Lindsay Boyle, Emily Farrell, Lauren, Shan McGinnis, Tabitha Upter Pledge, Maddie Varis, Kelly Landon, Renee, Allison Mazzarini, Amy Constance, Carrie Sawyer, Caitlin Oruska, Sarah Lewis, Savannah Franklin, Bree Davies, Annie Falconer, Judy Bourne, Sharonda Carter, Julie Essen upped her pledge to $10. Thanks, Julie. Thank you. And Emily Wasson. Okay, guys. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will be back in two weeks. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.